They should have every single ingredient and have every single ingredient tested for decades on all different sorts of organisms to understand what, if any, problems. And the fact that you don't even know, your doctor doesn't even know, nobody even knows what in the heck is in these things. I mean, that is just, that is a public health failure. Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey, everyone. It's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. And this is the third time I've had Dr. Thomas Callen on. He's been a really popular speaker. And he and Dr. Andrew Kaufman, and now there's another uh, actual virologist who is out there singing the same song, but there's not very many of them, uh, have been out there saying there is no virus and nobody can prove that there is. And so, you know, every six months I check back in with Dr. Cowan on whether they've ever produced any proof that there's an actual virus. But Dr. Cowan spent decades uh, in general practice of medicine. He was in San Francisco. He uh, also was a doctor in upstate New York and I believe New Hampshire. Um, And he lives on some rural farmland in upstate New York. Uh, He has several children and and grandchildren. And he's just come out with a new book, which is what I wanted to talk to him about, about the myth of contagion. So Dr. Cowan, I think I've been running this podcast for four or five years now. And you're one of the few people that I've interviewed three times, but what we talk about keeps changing and it's never been more on point and more salient than right now. We're talking in August of 2021. And I, you know, have interviewed, I don't know, a hundred people since this whole start thing started but it was sort of academic for me. And now I've been sick for two weeks. And so I'm super keenly interested in your new book, The Contagion Myth, which you said Amazon is calling something different. Um, but you're you're sticking to your guns. You've been saying this for a year and a half now. Very, very few voices out there saying it, that the whole of virology is a fraud. And I don't have what I think I have, you know, Pick up wherever, whatever thread of that you want to and tell me, what what do I really have? And what do we really need to know about contagion? Yeah, well, thanks, Robin. It's nice to talk to you again. And uh, Amazon banned the book called The Contagion Myth, and then the publisher republished it as The Truth About Contagion. And in the next few weeks, I have a booklet coming out which I think will be called Breaking the Spell, which is a very concise version of what I'm about to say. So if anybody really wants to uh, see the the images and see the actual proof of what I'm going to say, that's the place to go. So if, if you can permit me to just explain what I think your listeners and probably you need to know about this. That's probably the best way to do this. If that's okay. okay, does that work for you? Yes, small ears. So, 
the issue which you would think every person like in the United States anyways in Europe and probably most of the world you would think they would know uh but unfortunately don't know is a very simple question which is how does a virologist uh find a new virus and then show that it causes disease um so that's a very simple question and you would think everybody would know you would certainly think every medical doctor would know because they tell people all the time you have a virus and that's what's causing your disease uh what i found is basically no lay people know and i would say essentially no medical doctors know the answer to that question so it's a bit like hiring a baker to bake bread who doesn't know the steps of how to how to bake bread and i'm not talking about an answer like well you do a test because obviously you need to know what the thing is testing for so let me go over that in some detail because once you see how that works that it's it's very straightforward my guess is you will see what's really happening here okay so how do you know if there's a new virus if you ask most lay people they say things like well a lot of people get sick in one place and that proves it's a virus or they'll say a lot of people get sick with similar or the same symptoms and that it spreads from one person or one place to another and that proves it's a virus or they'll say there was nobody sick at the prison and then somebody went there with a positive pcr test and then suddenly other people got sick and that proves it's a virus or they'll say my aunt bessie went to church and somebody was sick there and that proves it's a virus So the first thing I want to say is that there is no virologist in the world who thinks that that what I just said is accurate. None. Really? Those are called epidemiological observations. And the role of epidemiology in science is to generate hypotheses, meaning theories about what could be the problem. which is then tested usually in a laboratory. So virologists don't sit around and watch the news and say, well, a lot of people got sick, that proves it's a virus. And I would also point out that if you think that because a lot of people got sick, that proves it's a virus, then you must think Hiroshima was a virus. <laughs> and if you think because it spreads from one place to another, that proves it's a virus, you must think that chernobyl was a virus mm-hmm. which nobody thinks that the other thing i would say is for hundreds of years people observed that sailors on ships got sick their teeth fell out they went into heart failure many died hundreds of years they said this is contagious it spread from one person to another and then the next sailors got sick and then somebody ate a lime and the whole thing went away because they had scurvy I would also say millions of people died with diseases called pellagra and beriberi it often happened in the same family and in towns for 100 years they thought it was some contagion it turns out those are b vitamin deficiencies because of the way that people process corn so i just want to say 
if you stick to the belief that those things proves it's a virus, then you have no place at the table because you don't understand science or how virologists are finding viruses. So let me just stop there. Is that clear? Yeah, that's clear. So So I don't need another story about so-and-so got sick or, my God, he went to visit his friend and he got sick. Uh, I Let's just say, for the sake of argument, I agree that somebody should have looked into whether there's a contagion here and whether it may be a thing called a virus. And we did. And I'll tell you what they found. But to say that that's proof is absolute nonsense. Is that clear? Yep, got it. Okay. Now, here's the next thing. If you ask most medical doctors, some medical doctors will think the first thing because they just don't understand the science here. But then uh, you go to the next step and you say, okay, how do you find a virus? Well, it's obvious. You take a bunch of sick people. You look through their bodily fluids and you find this particle called a virus that's there in abundant quantity and it's the same virus in all these people, right? That makes sense. Right. Now, let's get some definitions here. Uh, this seems obvious, but let me just say it. This particle we're looking for called a virus is a thing. And I say that because It's not a feeling or a thought or a conception or an idea or a hope or a fear. It's an actual particle that has a protein coat and a genetic interior, which in the case of the so-called SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the coronavirus, its genetic material is RNA. So in other words, it is a particle It is a thing like a pencil or a piece of paper or a chair. It's smaller than those. But everything can be isolated, quantified, and visualized. That's the rules of the game. So so you look through the bodily fluids of the people who are sick, presumably with the same symptoms. You find this particle. And that show, that's the first step in showing that the virus exists. So here I'm going to say something that will shock a lot of people and maybe you. But in having looked through the medical literature now for over a year and a half, speaking with countless people, and I'll tell you who agrees with the following statement. There is not one published case of any so-called pathogenic, which means disease-causing virus, being found in any bodily fluid of any sick person, not one. Now, think about that for a minute. You can take any fluid, you know, lung fluid, blood, urine, feces, cerebrospinal fluid, any fluid you want from any sick person, and there is not one of these so-called disease-causing viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, to be found. Now, let me tell you the people who agree with that statement. Number one, there's 92 governmental health institutions, 
like the CDC and the NIH and the FDA and the equivalent in Ireland and England and France and Germany and Australia and New Zealand. We have in writing from all those uh, institutions, can you show us one paper showing the SARS-CoV-2 virus from the fluid of any sick person and they all say in writing, the answer is that doesn't exist. Oh. But let me tell you another group of people who agree with that. Uh, the leading spokesman for such, such institutions as the Pasteur Institute, the Robert Koch Institute, the CDC, and other major virology institutions in writing agree that there is not one published case of uh, example of SARS-CoV-2 being found in any bodily fluid of any person with any symptoms. Here's another group of people who agree with that. The six virologists who wrote the major papers called, uh, entitled The Isolation and Characterization of SARS-CoV-2 in other words, they say they isolated and characterized this new virus from sick people. When we asked them in writing, did you isolate the virus from a sick person? They said, no, we did not attempt to isolate the virus from any sick person. What? Now, let me, tell, let me tell you one final person uh, or group of people who agree with what I just said. So I was asked to present this, what I'm saying now, to a group of activists, lawyers, doctors, journalists, et cetera, who were interested in, in combating the COVID narrative, let's say. But they're very unhappy with what I'm saying. But they were sort of forced into, into inviting me based because so many people told them they needed to. And they invited the guy who they introduced to me as a pathologist who was for 20 years a senior pathologist and virologist for the Chinese Center for Disease Control in Wuhan. Mm. Then he was 20 years a senior pathologist working in a virology laboratory at Yale University in the United States. So I thought this will be interesting because I would think he would know something about virology. So we asked him point blank, uh, we being me and my friend Andy Kaufman, uh, is this true that there is no cases of SARS-CoV-2 being found in any bodily fluid in any person who is sick? And he said, correct. And I said to him, why not? He said, there's not enough virus to see. Now, think about that. It's supposedly going to kill us all, but even with an electron microscope, there is not one virus you can find. And so Andy asked him, what about if you mix 10 people together and mix their fluids? Would there then be enough to see? And he said, no. And then he said, what about 100 people? mix their bronchial fluid together, would there be enough virus to see? And he said, no. And he said, a thousand people. And he said, no. And then he said, 10,000 people. And he said, there's not enough to see. 
And then he wouldn't answer anymore. So my point here is if you think that you can take somebody who's sick and find a this particle, this thing, which we've already agreed is a thing, uh, from any bodily fluid, you don't do not understand the science, and nobody in this field thinks that is possible. Now, let me just point out also that it is not because things of that size and complexity can't be found. In fact, there have been bacteriophages, which are the exact size and composition of viruses, which have been found ever since the electron microscope was invented about 80 years ago. Here's how you find them. You take a culture or a fluid, you grind it up, similar to how you would grind coffee beans. You filter it, similar to how you would make coffee. Then you put it in an ultra centrifuge and it spins things out by molecular weight. Then you suck the band out that represents the weight of the virus. You look at it under an electron microscope and you see uniform particles. They're all the same size. They're all the same weight. They all have the same composition. They are the exact size and shape of what we are alleging this virus to be. So I, my point is that's is this is not a technical problem of you simply can't you know there's not the technology to find such a particle that's okay. simply not true the the answer is as he said there's not enough virus to find even if you mix 10,000 people with covid their fluids together you can't find even one virus. Now think about that for a minute. So the problem then is people will then say to me, well, Tom, there's, let me just take a wild guess here. 10,000 papers in the medical literature with the title, the isolation and characterization of such and such a virus, including I've probably seen, let's take another guess, 50 with regard to SARS-CoV-2, right? So these are researchers, virologists, who are claiming they isolated and characterized this SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. COVID is the name of the disease, right? So they say they've isolated the virus. And people have sent me or I've seen maybe 60 of these. So the question is, what are they talking about? Yeah. Right? How, how do they all agree that they've isolated this virus? And yet, if you ask them, did you take it from a sick person? Well, they say yes. But let me explain the method that they did it. Now, this method actually started in 1954. It started with a paper by a guy named John Enders. He was given the Nobel Prize for isolating the measles virus, right? And every single isolation of every single pathogenic virus has been done exactly the same way with the very few modifications, which I'll explain ever since. 
And so the, the relevance of it is this started it, and for now 65 years or so, they've done it the exact same way ever since. So here's what Enders did. And before I explain that, I just want to point out that we're looking for a, a piece of a particle with a protein coat and a genetic interior, right? That's what we're looking for. Right. So he took the snot from four or five children with measles. He then mixed it with milk, which interestingly is a source of genetic material and proteins. And then he filtered it. And that got rid of the bacteria and the debris and dead cells. And that is not a purification step any more than if you filter ground coffee that you haven't purified caffeine, right? So then he takes this uh, liquid. So everything that's smaller than a bacteria, anything that was in the children's snot with measles plus the milk, and he mixed it with bovine embryo serum, fetal calf serum, and horse serum, right? Okay. All three of those have proteins and genetic material. He mixed it together with that, and then he inoculated it, which means he spread it on monkey kidney cells, which are uh, tissue from monkey kidneys another source of genetic material and proteins. And then nothing happened. So then he took away the nutrients from the tissue culture. In other words, he starved the tissue culture and nothing happened. And then he added antibiotics. He added penicillin and streptomycin. Uh, streptomycin is a kidney toxic antibiotic now they use amphotericin and genomycin, two very highly toxic antibiotics to kidney cells. And the whole thing broke down into thousands of particles. And he said, those particles are the measles virus. And he yeah, called so, that so that's, the isolation of the measles virus. Okay. And so this was the first time that supposedly a virus was isolated or no, just yes. only the measles. Okay. Yes. That was and the then, first time a pathogenic virus was isolated from any sick person. Now here's what's interesting. He, he did a control experiment, although he didn't actually in his paper, which by the way, as I said, got the Nobel prize in medicine. He didn't actually write what he did, but let's say, let's assume he did an honest control. And what he did was he did the whole thing, the milk, the bovine fetal stuff, that horse serum, the antibiotics, the starving, the kidney cells. But this time he didn't add anything from anybody with measles, right? Okay. And you know what happened? What? He said the results were indistinguishable. Really? Now, that means to me that there was no, uh, that there was no virus killing the kidney cells. Now, by the way, the definition of isolation in modern virology is, a, is the cytopathic effect called CPE. 
That means if you take fluid from somebody and you don't purify it and you mix it with vero cells, which are kidney cells, and you take away the fluid, uh, the nutrients, and you add uh, nephrotoxic antibiotics, and those kidney cells break down, which means a cytocell pathic breakdown effect, that proves it was because of the virus. That is the proof of the virus. Enders proved and mentioned two other people in his paper who said, by the way, we did this thing without adding anything from anybody with measles, and this tissue broke down in the exact same way. Now, I just want to say, and I was going to show the slide, and the slide will be in my booklet. We, and we means me and Andy and a virologist named Stefan Lenka, we, for the first time in 60 years, repeated this experiment, and we grew cell cultures. We didn't do it ourselves. We contracted with a, a virologist group that does cell cultures. Uh, they grew the cultures. We uh, and they did fine. Then we added the fetal calf serum and they did fine. And then we added a little bit of antibiotics and they did fine. And then we added uh, the usual dose of antibiotics and took away the nutrients. And we got the typical cytopathic effect that proved that there was a virus, even though we added no virus or anything from anybody who was sick proving that the cytopathic effect, which is the proof in virology, and I, when I say the proof, I don't mean one of the proofs. I mean it is the proof that there is a pathogenic virus, and we demonstrated that the cytopathic effect is because of the way that we grow these tissue cultures, period. Okay. Now, because of that, Every genetic analysis is done on the results of the tissue cultures. And by the way, in the old days, a vaccine for measles was simply the result of the breakdown of those tissue cultures uh, injected into people. That's what a live viral vaccine is. An attenuated vaccine is they filter that or heat sterilize it to, quote, kill it. That's what they mean by a live viral vaccine, is simply the breakdown of tissue. You have no idea where any of these particles or any of this genetic material came from. So the whole concept of we found the genetic material of this COVID virus is nonsense because every analysis was done on the results of the tissue culture where it had the unpurified stuff from the person. It had fetal calf serum. It had uh, monkey kidney cells. You have no idea what you're looking at. Okay. So I saw that Stefan Lenko has published in what, April of this year, the repeat of that study from the, the measles study. Is he being uh, he, I mean, it's published somewhere, right? So is he being persecuted? Is he being attacked in his career? Does he have an active career as a virologist somewhere? Like, how does he keep his job? 
uh, it, Stefan was credited with finding the first uh, uh, actual, quote, virus, meaning particle the size and shape that we call a virus, from the ocean. He He's a, you know, prestigious member of the virology circle. This was, I think, in the 80s or maybe early 90s. He then set out to uh, do the, to find so-called pathogenic viruses in the way that I described and in the way that he found this virus. He took sea algae, he ground it up, he filtered it, he centrifuged it, he looked at it under electron microscope. Everyone was identical. Everyone had the same proteins. Everyone had the same genetic material. It was very simple, very clear, very doable. He was the first one who did it at, with uh, in the ocean, and they then he he started noticing that the sea algae that had this particle in it were healthy, and the ones that didn't weren't. And he said something like, "What the heck?" So he starts looking for doing the same thing with measles and other viruses, only to find that they're not there. And then he did it with HIV. It's not there. And I was going to show you a clip of Luc Montagnier's electron microscopist saying, we never found a particle that we could call HIV from anybody with, uh, with AIDS. Wow. The importance of that is Luc Montagnier got the Nobel Prize for discovering the HIV virus. Yes. And his, he says in this clip I was going to run, well, you have to find the virus in an electron microscope. Otherwise, you don't know whether it's a real virus. And then his electron microscopist says, we never found it. And there is approximately a million and a half dollar prize now 40 years for anybody who can show a particle called HIV from one person, any bodily fluid who has AIDS. And I happen to know the guy who put the money up. I happen to know he's a very good investor and very shrewd with his money in a good way. And I know that he still has his money. Wow. Because it doesn't exist, period. If you think it does, then you have to show me the study and I guarantee you won't find it. So how do they find it? Well, they take blood. They don't purify it. They mix it with other genetic material. The cells break down. They say that proves it's a virus. They do a genetic analysis, not knowing where any of these genetic pieces came from. The genetic analysis is never of an intact particle. It's only in the computer, which is why the, uh, the original paper that came up with the PCR test by a guy named Christian Drosten, who's the sort of Fauci of Germany, he admits that they made the PCR test, which whose premise is a PCR test says, we found a piece of the genome of the virus, number one. Number two, that piece is unique to that virus. He admits in his paper they never had a copy of the virus. Now, think about that. If you were to, to prove to me that this piece of a hoof came from a unicorn, 
uh, you better have a unicorn first so that you can figure out that that piece came from a unicorn because it defies logic, common sense, and every rule of science to say without having isolated the thing you're looking for, there is some way to know that this piece of it came from that thing. Nobody thinks like that except virologists. Okay, so how did they get thousands of virologists to just ignore the fact that at the very, very foundation of what they do, uh, nothing's ever been proven. Like super, super basic stuff is just sitting out there nakedly not proven. And so they have to spend their entire careers building on a lie. Am I wrong? How, no, how that they- is correct. So imagine this scenario. Virologist, he's got a you know good salary, tenured position. He reads the work of Stefan Lenka. He reads the, what I'm saying. He knows that it's true. He, he does experiments to prove it. He proves it. He goes to the head of the department and he says, by the way, Joe, I just proved that this cytopathic effect, and I want to say this again, that is not a way virologists prove the existence of virus. It is the way, the way, the only way. He says, you know, I just proved that that comes because of the way we handle the tissue cultures. The head of the department looks at it and says, by golly, you're right. Anything else? Yeah, you're fired because we don't need you anymore. Right. Goes home to his wife. His wife says, what'd you do today? Well, I, you know, I proved to the head of the department that it's, big, it's a bunch of bullshit. So what happened next? Well, he fired me because there's nothing to this. So how are we going to make a living? Well, I think I'll grow. I'll start. I'll be a carrot farmer. Or maybe I'll grow greens. Then we can make smoothies. Um, uh, but you don't know how to grow carrots. In fact, you've never even been outside in your life. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, you can learn. Right? How is so that going to go? Who does say Stefan Lenko? How did this, because this, this study, and I think you, the three of you collaborated on it. Like, it's, it's new. I mean, we talked about it. Stefan found the cell culturist to do it. You know, I helped raise the money to fund it. Uh, and we did it because, and then we're going to show it's not finished yet, that because of the way they make these, what they call alignment of the genome. And I don't want to get into that because it's, it's too long for this show. Um, we, we will then show that you can show that there's any RNA virus in that brew that you want, even though there's none of them were, there was nothing from anybody with measles or AIDS or Corona, COVID. And yet we're going to find SARS-CoV-2 genome. Yeah. Because once you understand how they do this in silico genome alignment, which is basically taking uh, uh, you know, millions of pieces of genetic material and putting them in the computer and asking it to, to make the, a book out of it. It's like you put a hundred million letters into a computer and you say, make a book. And the computer says, which book? And you say, I'm not telling you. 
Okay. And the computer says, I can't make a book, the book because unless I know what book I'm making, I can't do that. Okay, make uh, SARS-CoV-2. Okay, what's the template? Use SARS-CoV-1. So it does. And then it makes some mistakes, and those are called variants. Wow. Okay, so what? who's, who's benefiting from this, or who, where did this originate? Who, who did this to I, us? I try, I'm trying to stay with the science here, right? If you get into motivation, and I mean, I, I know obviously something about that, and I have my guesses and speculations like everybody else. But my role in this, as I see it, is those are the scientific facts as I see it, as Stefan sees it, as Andy Kaufman sees it, and a bunch of other people who've been looking at this, some of us for 30 years, like me with HIV, but like Stefan, you know, he didn't say anything for 10 years because anyways, you asked a question, what happened to me? He quit. He said, there's nothing in this virology. I'm going to do something else. Um, And, and, you know, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to get into this. Events led me to get involved. Then I had to really go deeply into how do they do this? What What is the procedures and the science? I realized that none of my colleagues, none of the people in the so-called anti-vax community actually knew how they found a virus. And so I had to figure it out. Right. Okay. Well, since you brought up the vaccine, what do you have to say about that? Like what's everything that's going on right now? I think you live in upstate New York and what, you're, what is you're... the point of an injection for a get to make you quote immune to a virus that nobody can prove exists. Yep. yep. Right. But you don't, you don't want to draw some inferences from that, especially the fact that you've been looking at this for 30 years since a very similar situation happened with HIV that isn't actually a virus. Same playbook over and over and over again, which is why, even though there's a lot of people who are criticizing me and why can't you just say it's a bad cold and a bad virus and, and we don't really need the injection for this or that reason, I'm not going to do it. I, I, I have a scientific integrity here a personal integrity, which is here is the facts as I see it. And if you have any dispute about the facts, I'm happy to hear it. Let me just explain another thing. So some of the virologists have shown me pictures of the SARS-CoV-2 with the black dots that look like coronaviruses, right? Okay. You probably have seen those. Mm-hmm. And they and these come from these tissue cultures, right? They don't come from anybody who's sick. I mean, they took something from the sick person, then they cultured it, and then they show these. So what are those? Don't those prove there's some particle? Well, it turns out there was a recent published article in a nephrology journal, which is interesting because nephrologists don't care so much about whether there's viruses or not. Uh, but they had their own electron microscopy study, and they proved that these exact images, and I mean exact, 
were found in kidney biopsies going back to the 70s. They proved that the CDC knows that these images that are they're calling SARS-CoV-2 are identical images going back to the 70s because they had a conference about called viral mimickers back in the early 80s. Uh, they even know that the protein that makes the black dots is actually a human protein called clathrin. And so that is not a SARS-CoV-2 at all. There is no evidence of that at all. My point is I've had to go and look into every single detail of this because, you know, people have criticized me. And so I need to know how to defend myself and important, more importantly, defend the science. Okay. So where do we even go from here with the, with, with standing up to the, there's so few of you out there actually pointing any kind of flashlight at this. So how do we, I I noticed that a lot of people won't even look at your this whole thing. I thought that in the last 18 months that a lot more people would come your direction because you really cannot prove there's a virus and nobody has been able to, and you've been relentlessly asking, well, you know, prove there's, prove there's a virus. This shouldn't be difficult. I mean, my first, I think my first or second interview with you was, um, talking about Coke's postulates and just walking us through those four steps. And still nobody's done it. And still you've been asking the questions and you still haven't gotten it. And so they just basically come up with, here's this particle and we're call, we're going with this. We're calling this SARS-CoV-2 and nobody can prove it. And so where do we go from here? Like I, I noticed that like Dell Bigtree and other people won't even touch this. Of course not. You know? To me, it's just about the science. They can say there's a laboratory created this. So show it to me. Yeah. But let's see it. There's a very specific way. It's been around for 80 years. Find the laboratory created virus in the bodily fluid of any sick person. We know how to do that for 80 years. Should be the same one in every person who's sick. Show it to me and I'll say I'm wrong. I've been wrong a lot of times before about a lot of things. Every single one, as far as I can tell, was because I believed what I was told more than I should have. And I'm not interested in doing that anymore. So why don't they do it? I don't know. You have to ask them. Yeah. So then then we're left with, well, what is this shot then? If it's not actually inoculating us against anything... It, the, here's, here's what the shot is. And again, I had a, a present, a slideshow that I can say this. But here, here is the COVID play, if you want to use that word. The, the proteins you make, you being a human being or a snail or any, any living being, were basically made out of proteins, right? Their proteins are hormones and enzymes and structural, et cetera. Uh, so, and they actually, the proteins structure our water, which is really what we are is structured water based on the proteins infrastructure. The proteins are like the scaffolding or the two by fours of your house. 
and the the water is like the bricks. So whoever controls the proteins controls you. You with me? Yep. So how are proteins made? So we have a a so-called central dogma of genetics. That is, you get you have these genes. Each gene codes for one protein, uh, and the genes are made into RNA, specifically mRNA, and the mRNA is made uh, into proteins. That's how it works. The problem is we did a human genome project. We found there's 250,000 proteins and about 20,000 genes. So the question is, since each one, pro- one gene makes one protein, how do 20,000 genes code for 250,000 proteins? The answer is, it doesn't work like that. And now the question is, if it doesn't work like that, how does it work? Yeah. Now, this I'm, I'm giving a very brief description of this, but the answer is basically... The proteins, believe it or not, and I'm not going to get into this too much, are made de novo, which means anew, in the watery part of our tissues and cells, mainly the cytoplasm, based on frequencies that interact with water, and the water organizes the amino acids into the proteins that make up life. As hard as that is for people to believe, you can actually demonstrate that that's the only possible way this can work. And most of the proteins, there's no code needed. Some of them seem to have a code, but that, that's the exception. Remember, we have 200,000 unaccounted for by any code. The beauty of that system is we essentially, living beings, accept sound and light and thoughts and feelings and love and chemicals and everything else, the water part of us somehow, due to its intelligence, knows how to organize that into this unique individuality called you. Hmm. Now, some people don't want that to keep going. So they want to control the proteins that you make, supposedly for your own good. Right. So they're trying to put sequences of RNA into you that will tell you which proteins to make more and more and more. And so then you will be, you will basically, you will be making the proteins, your very structure and function will be determined by somebody thinking they know what who you should be and what's good for you. Yeah. That's what's happening here. Personally, I'm willing to take my chances on on sound and light and sunlight and the earth and my friends and our kittens and the sheep and the daffodils and the tomatoes and the green juices, those determine who I am. I'm happy with that system. Well, it's a good thing that you are so self-sustaining because apparently your governor wants you all to be mandated to get the 
the vaccine. So got rid of the, maybe one of the worst governors in the history of ever, seems like to me, Andrew Cuomo, and who stepped into his place seems like worse, maybe. Yeah, I mean, whatever. They're going to do what they're going to do. My, again, my role in this, if I have a role, maybe I do and maybe I don't, is to say the science and the facts and the interpretation as I see it. And I always explain the reasons and where I got it from. And I could be wrong. I get details wrong. I misinterpret things all the time and then I correct it. But the theme has been the same for 30 years or more. And some of the details I would admit are, it's tricky, you know, it's a, yeah. It's, it's tough to figure all this out, but I have a lot of help and this is how I see it. And it is a very dangerous moment for humanity because if we go down, this is what's called synthetic biology. Mm-hmm. And that means synthetic proteins injected into you uh, to control your function and structure And that, to me, is a real problem. Because unless those people who are making that know exactly what I need, which is interesting because they never met me, uh, I don't trust it. Yeah. Now, here's the that's the bad news. The good news is it turns out it doesn't work like that. As I said, These codes are not generally how we make proteins. So there is still a real question as to whether these codes will actually make you make proteins. You know, Andy and I have looked at this and tried to find studies. Can you prove that this so-called spike protein, which, by the way, has been synthetically made for at least 20 years or more, has nothing to do with any so-called coronavirus. Um, does it? Can you prove that you give somebody these injections and they, in fact, do make more spike proteins? Um, the answer is maybe. There's one study that shows for a few days an elevated uh, level, uh, and then it goes back down to normal. So or non-existent. So there's a real question of whether or not they can do this. I mean, that's why they put it in nanoparticles and lipids, and they put, you know, graphene, and they put all these things in there because they're, the, they're, they're not able to really do this because this is not how life works. Mm-hmm. And they're determined to get it to work like that. I don't know why. I mean, I have guesses, but I don't want to get into that. Um, and maybe they can do it and maybe they can't. I guess we'll see. Okay, so I didn't get sick from a virus, but the, so here's what we think happened. We flew home from Utah and we had been moving for two weeks, packing boxes under a lot of stress the last year and a half, like you've been out there saying things that aren't popular and getting punched in the face for it every single day. And then spend an entire day in an airport eating garbage food uh, for lack of any other food. 
And we think that we were probably sitting next to somebody who just got vaccinated and is shedding spike protein. And that's how we got sick because we got sick and uh, maybe less than two days after we got home. And we've been sick ever since for almost two weeks now. Do you think that this spike protein hypothetically is making people sick, this man-made spike protein? Uh, yes, but it, it's not It's not that they shed spike proteins. It's that they shed sequences which code for spike proteins. Okay. Now, right, right. So you you figured it out. You know, the irony of this is if you ask the question, how do you get these Vero, these kidney cells, to break down to prove there was a virus? Mm-hmm. It's simple. You starve and poison them, right? Yeah. So how do you get a person to be sick? It's simple. You starve and poison them. Yeah. Just like what happened to you. But I I will admit that in this last 18 months, you know, if you'd asked me 18 months ago um, why people get sick, I would have said three reasons. One, injuries, right? You fall off your horse. So that makes you have a broken leg. It's a kind of sickness. Right. Number two, starvation. Now, starvation means a lot of things. It doesn't mean just no food, because actually that's mostly good for you. Uh, it means bad food. And if you know, if my definition of bad food, it's like Tom, people say, so Tom, you mean we should read labels? And I say, if it has a label, don't eat it. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. The greens that you make smoothies from, my guess, they don't have labels. May say you know kale or something, but you know. See now I'm starting to want. Now I got to go look and see if Dr. Callen's garden products have a label. I think they do. Yeah, we say this is you know kale or whatever. Yeah, that's what the label says. I would admit. Um, So, (laughs) but anyway, I think you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So Uh, everyone. Next thing is starvation is poisoning. Now poisoning can be. You know, glyphosate, EMFs, because after all, the signal for making proteins is mostly electromagnetic fields. So it could be arsenic, poison water, you know, there's a list as long as your arm. But in the last year and a half, I've added a fourth one, which may be the most important one at all, and that's called delusions. Hmm. It's not good to think ridiculous thoughts. (laughs) It's not healthy. It makes you sick. And so that's what's happening as as well as fear, anxiety. You know, people are breaking down. They're they're suffocating with masks. I mean, this is a catastrophe. And so why do people get sick? All those things you said. Plus, it turns out that this this transmission of sequences, which has been known about for at least two decades, and they were warned to to, uh, investigate this before they came out with these injections, turns out it seems to be actually real. What seems to be real? The transmission of mRNA sequences. Yeah. Or at least something in there, maybe the graphene or maybe the lipid nanoparticles. We know that those can be shed. Do you have anything to say about the graphene? You just mentioned graphene oxide because I guess it's been maybe a month now that 
this Spanish research lab claims that the shot itself is comprised of 99.99% plus graphene oxide. And then since then, I've learned that it coats, graphene coats a lot of masks. And so it's very easy to go there in your mind that, oh, I see they're just poisoning us. It's like really that simple. They're just poisoning us with graphene. And I know you don't want to ascribe motive. I would say right now that's, um, you know, we've tried to confirm that. And I think we've done, we've got a little bit of confirmation, but not as much as I would like to have. Yeah. So I think it's, it, it's definitely real and worth, I mean, the thing is, it shouldn't be up to Tom Cowan living in his little homestead to figure this stuff out, right? Mm-hmm. That's supposedly why we have public health institutions and FDAs and all that. They should know without a shadow of a doubt what you're injecting in you. They should have every single ingredient and have every single ingredient tested for decades on all different sorts of organisms to understand what, if any, problems. And the fact that you don't even know, your doctor doesn't even know, nobody even knows what in the heck is in these things. I mean, that is just, that is a public health failure. Yeah, I think if everybody feels really too much bogged down in science, as we've taken a lot of deep dives for the last year and a half, if you just want to end the conversation with someone or you want to punctuate it with what's really obvious, just say, what's in the shot? All these people who want to defend it, I follow the science, whatever. Okay, so what's in the shot? And and that's a question you should be able to ask anybody and you'll never get a good, you'll never get an answer. Or how do they know it's a virus? Just ask them. I encourage everybody listening to this today or tomorrow to go to your primary care doctor and ask them that question. Because now you know, and when they say, well, you do a PCR test, (laughs) you say, well, what is it measuring? Well, it's measuring what it says on the box. Um, Or... You know, they'll give you some answer and you will be astonished to realize that they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. And just like, uh, what was it, January 20th, World Health Organization, in the middle of another event, when they knew everybody would be looking the other direction, stated that uh, we're no longer going to consider anything over, I want to say, 30 cycles of PCR to be a positive test. Now they've quietly, CDC and World Health Organization have basically pulled off of the PCR test altogether, which is very, very predictable. That's actually not true. No? They said that we're not doing a PCR, but if you read the fine print as to the test that they're replacing it with, it's just a more sensitive and more bogus PCR test. Really? That That's an example of how they trick people who don't understand the science into thinking, see, we caught them red-handed. You didn't catch them red-handed at all. No. They did that deliberately so that they could say, see, we listened to people and we've instituted a new test and I did a whole webinar on this 
Uh, the new test is worse than the old test. And it's just another, probably another way for them to make money on the back door. It's not about money. It's about control. Yeah. Once you have a test like this, you control how many people you say are sick. Yeah. Once you control how many people you say are sick, the world is your oyster. So it just eliminated the how many cycles. It just sort of codified it and same they thing. They still though. use the cycles. Wow. Okay. It's all baloney. It, it's just astonishing. Well, okay. So tell everybody where they can get the long version of your book and also the short version. So uh, they can get, uh, so we have a website, drtomcowan.com. And we're also doing a, um, a conference in Florida in October 9th and 10th, where Stefan will be there in person. And some of the really leading people in the world on this, this, what I'm calling the new biology, because that's really what this is about. So I want to encourage everybody to join us, hopefully in person. If not in person, then at least, uh, you know, virtually, whatever that is, um, to, to learn about what really is the problem with biology, which is at the core of this problem. Uh, the book, The Contagion Myth, uh, you can get it at our website, you can get it at Barnes & Noble, and the Amazon calls it The Truth About Contagion because they banned it when it was called The Contagion Myth for some reason. And, you know, I do a lot of webinars and all kinds of information just trying to explain how I see this situation. Okay, and where's the conference on October 9th and 10th in Florida? Jacksonville. Jacksonville? I live I live just south of Jacksonville. I'm going to be there. I'm going to go. We should introduce yourself. I'd be, love to meet you. Okay, and so where do we... Um, Sign up for that. <laughs> I don't, uh, unfortunately, I don't really know the answer to that. But, <laughs> you must not uh, be the one putting it on. Well, I'll find out. I'll go to that. You. Yeah, if you could, if you could post that somewhere, go to our website, Doctor Tom Count. I think we have a whole different website for that. So, if you could please let people know about that, uh, that would be really great. Okay, I will find that out, and we'll we'll publish that in the show notes. Great. Where this uh, conference is, because hey, Jacksonville, October eighth and ninth, I can go to that. Yeah, maybe ninth and tenth, but somewhere. Ninth and tenth, okay, okay. Well, I will see you there, and everyone else will see you in the pages of Dr. T- Cowan's book. Thank you so much for being with us yet again, Dr. Cowan. Best okay. of luck to you and everything you're doing. Great. Take care. Okay. Bye now. Bye bye.